Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Well, this week, Will and I are going to delve into one of the oldest areas of knowledge, rhetoric. You know, once upon a time, rhetoric was a core subject in American universities. It was right up there with theology and Greek and Latin. And these days, rhetorical analysis is finding new fans and new students, thanks in part to increased attention being paid to how politicians and corporate leaders manipulate us with their words, especially, and we can't be shy about this, President Donald Trump. COVID-19, that name gets further and further away from China, as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. Yeah, well, it it might seem puzzling to associate an erratic uh, Sunday morning tweet storm kind of president like Donald Trump with this ancient uh, craft of rhetoric. But as our guest today shows, Trump has demonstrated genuine skill in the art of political communication. I saved hundreds of thousands of lives. We don't ever get even a mention. Well, to find out just how good Trump is, we've invited Jennifer Murcia to join us on the show. Jen is a scholar of political rhetoric at Texas A&M University and the author of the new book, Demagogue for President the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. Jen, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So let's jump right into the title of the book. Uh, what is a demagogue? It's a term that we've we've heard thrown around a lot in the last four years, but it does have a, a more traditional, specific meaning and etymology. But more important, is Donald Trump a demagogue and how does he qualify as one? Yeah, so the literal translation of the word demagogue in Greek is a leader of the people. And um, it's a neutral term. uh, And uh, so, you know, we would actually want someone to lead the people, to emerge maybe from the people to lead. Um, We're not used to thinking of a demagogue that way. So if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first definition of a demagogue is, um, you know, sort of a heroic figure. It is someone who defends the interests of the people against the other parts of the state. Uh, The second definition in the OED is a more villainous or dangerous figure, and that is someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own benefit. Um, And so what I argue in my book is that Donald Trump is both the heroic demagogue and the villainous or dangerous demagogue. Uh, And it depends on how you understand him. So to his supporters, he has convinced them that he is defending their interests against the other parts of the state, which um, he has convinced them are corrupt. And then for everyone else, um, they see him as someone who uses polarizing propaganda for his own gain. Well, Jen, you know, Donald Trump calls himself a very stable genius. And and you use the word genius in the title of your book. So I just, I've been itching to ask you this question. So like, you know, I, a lot of people, including myself, like, we, you know, we, we listen to him and, and, and sometimes he sounds like he can barely put a coherent sentence together. Uh, and so when we hear him say he's a genius, like I, I can't help but laugh. Uh, am I uh, missing something? Is he, is he practiced in some way? So you know, disciplined in some way that I can't see, or I refuse to see what is the source of his genius? Yeah, a lot of people ask me about this part of the title. Um, So, you know, one way of saying what I'm trying to say with the title is his demagogic effectiveness. 
And that is a term that comes from a rhetorical theorist named Kenneth Burke when he wrote about Hitler and Mein Kampf. Um, and he explained, uh, you know, Hitler's rhetorical strategies in Mein Kampf, and he described it as his demagogic effectiveness. Like these are the effective strategies that he uses to be a successful demagogue. Um, you know, marketing being what it is, I didn't think that the rhetorical demagogic effectiveness <laughs> of Donald <laughs> Trump would sell so many books uh, or be, you know, meaningful for people. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it is kind of a wink, wink, you know, when I say he's a genius. Um, mm -hmm. I actually have in the index how many times, you know, he calls himself a genius in my book, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a few. Um, <laughs> you, you I mean, it has to be true then, right? I mean, it if, has if, to if be you repeated it enough times. But at the same time, Donald Trump has controlled our public sphere for five years. That is nearly impossible. <laughs> in the attention economy that we have today. Right. He has turned every political question into a up or down referendum on Donald Trump, um, which serves his interests. He has solidified a base in a way that we have never seen a president do. Um, and he, <laughs> he is, you know, in fact, very effective. He is a rhetorical genius uh, at demagoguery. Mm. Well, let's dive into some of the the nuts and bolts here. So you have a kind of a matrix of the sort of rhetorical tropes or tricks in his bag that he uses in his public communication. And you write that some of these tricks are designed to unite people around certain ideas or, or grievances, uh, but that others are very explicitly designed to set Americans against each other. So there's a unifier and a divider uh, at work at the same time. Give us a couple of examples of these strategies. And, you know, you've examined what he was doing in 2016, but is this still in the playbook for 2020? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I got started... Um you know, really at the beginning of Trump's campaign, largely because of what Lindsey Graham said. There are some people who love Donald Trump and say uh, that he's speaking the truth. What I think he's doing is being a demagogue. I think he's uninformed. He called uh, him a demagogue trying to destroy the Republican Party or something like that in July Francisco of 2015. I think he's hijacked the debate. I think he's a wrecking ball for the future of the Republican Party, and we need to push back. Um, and then in Late November, early December 2015, the New York Times invited me to participate in a week-long um, analysis of Trump's rhetoric. And they wanted me to, you know, see what I saw or what I heard that week and, you know, if there was any instances of demagoguery. And so I, I took notes and took it seriously. Uh, so there are things that he does that I think help to bond him with his followers. And the first one is probably the most important one for him, and that's ad populum, mm -hmm. um, appealing to the wisdom of the crowd. And the way he does it is, you know, Trump's crowd. <laughs> yeah. He appeals to the wisdom of Trump's people. They're the smartest. They're the best. They're the most patriotic. Those people in North Carolina, that stadium was packed. It was a record crowd. And I could have filled it 10 times, as you know. Those are incredible people. Those are incredible patriots. But I'm um, all of the best parts of America are represented in Trump's people. Um, and so, you know, he puts himself as the leader of the best part of America. And that really does a lot to bond him to his people. And it also gives him power because he can wield those people like a cudgel. And he does. So, you know, a demagogue would be nothing without followers, without loyal followers. And uh, Trump uses ad populum you know, daily <laughs> to solidify his base. 
The second thing that he uses is paralipses. And paralipses can be understood colloquially as I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> and everybody loves this one. Right, um, right. <laughs> it's great for Trump because it allows him to say two things at once, to not say and also say at the same time. Um, and it connects him to his base because it allows his base to think that they understand, you know, the real behind the scenes Trump, what he really, really thinks. And it makes him seem authentic. Um, it's, it's an act, I believe, um, <laughs> but it makes him seem like he is an authentic truth teller. But that's probably also a kind of permission structure, right? So that you can believe in conspiracy theories that maybe other people have promoted. Oh, absolutely. Um, he uses paralipses to circulate uh, rumor and innuendo and conspiracy. Um, and it's and it's often framed in like the language of, of conspiracy. So he'll say, you know, no one's going to tell you this. They don't talk about this. The media won't report this. But, you know, I'm not supposed to say this. But Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of John Kennedy. And, and, you know, his father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, exactly. what is this, right? Um, you know, it's a fantastic story because it emerges from like one guy who's associated with Infowars and, you know, moves from the extreme right wing fringe conspiracy fringe to um, to being mainstreamed by Trump, you know, and wow. propaganda theorists call that narrative laundering. Um, there's quite a few examples in my book of Trump doing that, whether it's um, mainstreaming or laundering um, white nationalist content or, you know, things from the manosphere, conspiracy theorists like Infowars. Um, Trump did that a lot in 2016. And I think that would be surprising um, to his base. You know, they wouldn't have suspected it. Were those choices strategic or is that just what's flowing by his eyes? Yeah. Um, so there's the story of uh, Muslim refugees. And the, the first thing that Trump said about Muslim refugees was... On a humanitarian basis, would we you should see accept it's them. Like it's a humanitarian crisis, and we have to help. Yeah. And the answer is possibly yes, Koki. Possibly yes. And if you look at the reaction to those thoughts um, from Breitbart, from Infowars, um, you know, and other like right-wing anti-Muslim blogs. It was very severe and it was very much like maybe Trump hasn't really thought this through. Maybe Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe Trump isn't our guy after all. You know, we thought he was on the right side of the nationalist question. And here he is, you know, saying that he's going to accept all of these refugees if he uh, if he wins. And we should help as much as possible. And so it didn't take very long for him to reconsider that position and to, in fact, um, reverse it. Hmm. And as he did that, he adopted their language, which um, I explain as a reification, right? treating people as objects. Coming into this country, and we have no idea where they come from, folks. Um, and that was to frame Trojan the refugees horse. as and a Trojan I don't horse. Known in 200 years for having created the Trojan horse as something that looked name. benign, but was actually an army. People come from. We don't know if they have love or hate in their heart, and there's no way to tell. 
That's really fascinating. You know, we, we've been thinking a lot about how media systems have changed over uh, the late 20th and early 21st century uh, and, and really got us to this point, and not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, you know, to the point where so many of our media systems seed extremism. Uh, perhaps extremism comes in the form of misogyny. Perhaps extremism comes in the form of white supremacy. And our president seems to have this insistence on refining and focusing those things. And, you know, clearly, if you look at the biography of Donald Trump, he is a product of and an active player in the creation of our current media ecosystem, from reality TV to Howard Stern to the tabloids to uh, to Twitter. And then, you know, all of his stuff echoes on Facebook and YouTube as well. Uh, how do you see his rhetorical style connecting to the changes in our media systems over the past 30 years. Yeah, that's such a great observation. I think that Trump has really calibrated his uh, rhetorical strategies to outrage media, which is a really smart choice, <laughs> yeah. um, considering his base and considering um, how outrage attracts attention and engagement. You know, so I call him the outrage president. He calls himself modern day presidential, but I think that's just code <laughs> for outrage. Um, and I think that, you know, the way that he wields conspiracy, um, he's very comfortable with that. And again, I think that's another sort of engagement trick. Conspiracy is really appealing in terms of those metrics of attention and engagement. Um, and also, of course, it's unquestionable, um, self-sealing narrative. Um, I think, you know, the way that he uses social media, it makes him seem authentic. Uh, I don't think that he's more authentic than, say, Barack Obama was when Barack Obama used social media. But the style and manner of it, you know, with the capitalization and the punctuation and spelling errors and the emotive content, all of that is very different from what you saw, you know, someone like Obama do. But, you know, I went back and found an interview from his social media director who said that the goal was to make Trump seem authentic. So does that mean he, he, he makes those mistakes on purpose that's designed to make him look like a regular guy? I think so. Um, I've read articles that say that, that say that, you know, he's not always tweeting, but he will, um, you know, look at scripts or whatever and say, you know, can you spell that wrong or make that all caps or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that. You know, one of the things that was surprising for a lot of people was listening to Trump on tape with Bob Woodward. And he had in early February of 2020, a pretty solid command of the basic facts of the coronavirus. He understood and conveyed those facts in a way that we don't see him do publicly. And so I think the reason why that was so surprising is that people take Trump at face value. They take the performance as the reality. And I don't. Um, <laughs> I see the performance as part of the spectacle. Um, and I see him as a demagogue of the spectacle. I don't think he's an idiot like the left does, and I don't think he's a hero like the right does. Well, a genius. It can be a mad genius, but a genius nonetheless. For sure. Let me ask you a, to ref, to come back to a specific incident that you write about um, that I think really is so um, 
it makes chills run down my spine even now. And this, maybe we can talk a little bit about whether this is intentional or just kind of part of his gut instinct. So in August 2016, he's still a candidate, and Trump tells a crowd at a rally that the only way to stop Hillary Clinton uh, might be to resort to what he calls the Second Amendment. And this would be later described, as you report, uh, as an assassination dog whistle. Well, why would something like that work politically? I mean, it was clear that this is some kind of invitation to violence, if not outright murder. Why would such a thing resonate? What is it about the, the message that works? I, I, I have to say that in, in most people's minds, such a, a message would be perceived to be horrible and awful and immoral, but somehow Trump managed to turn such a thing to his advantage. Yeah, I think it works the same way that war rhetoric works, um, right? So Trump had really figured Hillary Clinton as part of or the leader of the conspiracy of corruption that had plagued the United States for decades. And he said explicitly, uh, which was untrue, but he said explicitly that her plan was to open up the borders, let all of these dangerous criminals into the country to take away Americans' uh, Second Amendment rights and take away their guns and leave them exposed. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish the Second Amendment. And allow them to be victimized by these vicious invaders. You know, and that's war rhetoric. And so for him to say, you know, maybe the Second Amendment people could do something judges, about that. Nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But, you know, it really makes sense within the context of understanding this not as just a political campaign, but as, you know, a lead up to civil war. Well, you know... I find myself a little bit confused at this point as I as I reflect on the past five years and the statements and insults and everything else from Trump and, and the way that his choices are echoed through Fox News, through Infowars, through uh, you know a dozen or a hundred different uh, surrogates in different social media and regular media forms. So, to what extent is he just a bully shooting from the hip. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's using his power to insult people, he, you know, in nicknames like Crooked Hillary and Sleepy Joe, and he's mocked disabled people, and he's uh, declared that Mexicans are rapists and shamelessly and in rapid fire succession. So it's hard for me to grasp the thoughtfulness of this pattern, and it's hard for me to grant it the title of rhetoric, you know, right? <laughs> because to me, you know, a rhetorician is someone who has practiced at uh, delivering a message, whether that message is sincere, manipulative or whatever, right? We, the, our introduction to rhetoric is all through, you know, sort of classical sources and, uh, and we're introduced to fancy Greek words. Um, so how do, how do middle school insults <laughs> become <laughs> rhetoric? Yeah, that's such a great question. So the ad hominem attacks, right? These insults that you talk about, threats of force or intimidation, mm -hmm. those things that, you know, equate to the schoolyard bully. Um, they are typically understood to be fallacies. They're errors of logic or reason. Um, if you were in competitive debate, you know, in high school or college and your opponent did an ad hominem, you would raise a point of personal privilege and you would appeal to the judge and you would say, you know, mm -hmm. 
right. this is what happened. You know, this is um, against the rules. And, you know, the judge would adjudicate whether or not it had happened and, and deny the standing of that person who had who had made those attacks because they're grievous errors of debate. <laughs> right. right. Um, so there's that. But Trump is a demagogue. And the way that he uses language is as force. What I mean by that is that it denies the consent of the governed. It's compliance gaining and not rhetoric in the way that, you know, we understand rhetoric in the best sense of the word, which is um, a meeting of minds where one person tries to um, convince another person to think or feel or understand or remember in the same way that they do. And, um, you know, affirms that that person has the freedom to choose whether or not to change their mind and, and adopt those opinions. You know, that's a very idealistic view of what rhetoric is and what it could and should be. Um, very Aristotelian view, Kantian view, whatever. But Trump doesn't care about that. He cares about effectiveness, mm. right? He cares about exerting his will on another. He doesn't want to affirm their human dignity. He doesn't see the eminent value of persons. And he doesn't care about um, whether he has convinced you to obey and agree based on compliance or uh, free will. And uh, I think that's the difference that you're, you're trying to sort out. You know, we, uh, we try to think through some of these problems and imagine what solutions there might be out there to, uh, to deal with the many crises that democracy in the U.S. and around the world is facing now. And this is a big one. And we might, we might put it this way. Our democracy has encouraged an extraordinarily robust debate and argument, but it has started to morph into um, a public sphere in which sexism, racism, and hate speech has penetrated and has started to warp our public discourse. You know, just to be provocative, are we at the time when we have to police our public language better? Is that the solution? And if that's not the solution, what is for constraining, containing, moderating these kind of rhetorical tricks that actually are extraordinarily dangerous? They are dangerous. And it's anti-democratic, right? It's authoritarian to use language as force because uh, it denies consent. And so, you know, I'm very concerned <laughs> about our broken public sphere. Um, and, and that's what I'm trying to work on now. So, you know, in 2015, we had a crisis of polarization and of distrust and frustration. Trump didn't cause these things, of course. He just took advantage of them and used them as a wedge. And of course, all of those things are even worse now. <sighs> Part of the reason I think that our public sphere is so broken is, as I mentioned before, those metrics of attention and engagement that the whole public sphere seems to work on just aren't conducive to good decision making, right? Like if we're constantly posting our most outrageous takes in order to get the most likes and retweets and the most followers, um, you know, that outrage isn't uh, solving any political problems. Um, and in fact, it creates more problems because it alienates people, it silos people into us versus them. You know, the way that the algorithms and the apps and all of that operate are really about attention and engagement. And those are just terrible metrics for solving problems. They're great for uh, the app makers and, you know, the people who are making money off of commercials and stuff. But bad for everybody else. Well, Jen, you've just hit on one of the core themes of Democracy in Danger. This entire series is is trying to lead us ultimately to 
consider ways we might strengthen the norms and practices of democracy. And one of those core norms and practices is deliberation, right? How can we actually build up our deliberative muscles, the um, the sources of our information that, that, that can be well vetted and thus deliberated about comfortably, confidently, um, agreeably? How can we respect each other despite differences of opinion? How can we uh, refrain from dehumanizing each other in the process of our political engagements? These are all big challenges. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would say, you know, is that people who study deliberative democracy and democratic deliberation, you know, they know the best practices for how to organize a productive conversation that makes people feel as though they have participated meaningfully in uh, making a decision that arrives at conclusions that people can feel comfortable with, um, whether you call that consensus or not, you know, is up to you. But there are centers for democratic deliberation at universities around the country. Um, some of them get involved in like state issues and, and move around and do these kinds of deliberative practices, you know, throughout their states. And they do good work. And those people should be listened to because they actually have <laughs> good ideas. The Kettering Foundation is another one where anyone can get trained and use their issue guides and um, start forums in the public sphere in their community. Um, and, you know, we can relearn the skills that are required, um, you know, for democratic deliberation. We can do that. Hmm. We'll see if it works. Jen, I mean, American historians look at Trump and on the one hand, he seems strikingly original, new, unprecedented, but they also recognize some of his moves, his act. There have been other demagogues that have been quite successful in American political history. Some remained on the margins of American public life, but maybe a couple even got to the White House, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what you see is that each new media invention or innovation um, is seized upon by uh, people who want to lead the public. And some of those people end up being president um, and others are kept from, you know, offices of power. Um, and, you know, even going back into the 19th century um, to think about the way that Andrew Jackson took advantage of the emergent partisan press of the 1820s. People argue whether or not Donald Trump is the most successful demagogue in American history. Um, in my book, I had originally said he is the most successful. And the only edit that I got, I mean, from reviewers, from the editorial board for the press, the one edit that I got was I had to say one of the most successful demagogues in American history. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the, the the Republican Party in the 30s and 40s was apoplectic about FDR's demagogic talents and the spell he cast over America with his uh, radio driven intimacy. Right. Uh, so, I mean, how does that compare to Trump? The heroic demagogue. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, that's the difference. If you look back to ancient Greece, the distinction between the heroic demagogue and the dangerous demagogue is whether or not they're accountable for their words and actions. And so Donald Trump is, um, in my mind, very different from FDR in that he uses language specifically to prevent us from holding him accountable. And no one's been able to hold him accountable since. What about their rhetorical styles, comparing FDR to Trump? What about their rhetorical styles insulates Trump from accountability? Yeah, so FDR, 
you know, he had the intimacy through radio. If you read his speeches, he uses, you know, typical reasoning patterns to try to help his audience, the American people, understand um, the problem that the nation is facing from his perspective, his analysis of, you know, what the choices are, and then what the best uh, course of action is. And and some of those things are incredibly <laughs> revolutionary, you know, sort of radical in the moment. Um, and in other ways, he co-ops, you know, existing discourses that are circulating, um, you know, then from communist and from um, socialists and, and other viable um, options in the moment. Um, and he, he makes them democratic. Um, and so he's very successful at turning what could have been really radical ideas into sort of mainstream American, you know, democratic slash capitalist talking points. Uh, whenever I, 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 I try to get my daughter to listen to this podcast, she rolls her eyes. And <laughs> as a parent yourself, you probably know what that eye rolling looks like. She's, she's, she, she calls this a nerd fest. Um, she's, she's, she's <laughs> pretty obsessed with the fact that, you know, we, uh, we I resemble get, we that go, remark. We, yeah. Right, we go <laughs> so, and, but I, you know, I can't, I can't argue with it, right? I cop to it. I, I, I it's, it's one of the thrills of having these conversations with so many, uh, so many interesting people who are writing so deep about issues that are, you know, so crucial to our our time and our future. And so I'm wondering about whether rhetoric in general, the study of rhetoric, uh, is undergoing a significant update change or whether you think it should if it's not. You know, I, I mean, we live in a world in which rhetoric also consists of emojis and text messages and memes on Instagram and 280 character you know, uh, statements on Twitter, uh, you know, flows and comments. How does your field make sense of this proliferation of communicative styles? Definitely younger scholars are interested in all of the new cool things, um, you know. And me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, um, despite, you know, my giggling and my ability to tweet out <laughs> memes about rhetoric, you know, that people will actually, you know, circulate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a old school rhetorician, you know, I mm. talk about argumentation and, um, democracy, <laughs> right? you know, and, and not everybody's doing that anymore, um, in rhetoric. So, so it is a broad field. Um, so I have actually made it a point and I've had a lot of opportunity because of Trump. Um, <laughs> but I've really made it a point to try to talk to the public and with the public about rhetoric. Rhetoric's cool. Well, words may have gotten us into this trouble, but I like your idea that words can also get us out of it and heal us. Jennifer Murcia, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Siba, what a great stimulating conversation with Jen about demagogue as president, which is what Donald Trump, she thinks, really is and has forced us to think about what has happened to us politically um, in the last four years. What have we learned about ourselves? How do we reason through political problems as a society when the source of information and the source of so much of our political conversation is Donald Trump, who is a skillful manipulator of reality? And uh, we have to now assess whether or not we can rebuild ourselves uh, after these four years of having a demagogue as president. 
I mean, one of the things that, that I've sensed just sort of, you know, standing back and feeling it all wash over me is that the rapid fire effect of Trump's rhetorical choices that, you know, might be intuitive to him, might be practiced, might be strategic or tactical, has the effect of dislodging whatever we were mad about the day before or whatever he might be on the verge of being held accountable for the day before. And we're on to a new thing. You know, I don't know of any other American politician who even tried that. Oh, 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 pick me, pick me. <laughs> of course, Senator Joseph McCarthy, ah. uh, 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 you know, used that tactic to perfection. And it was perhaps the first time in which somebody would knowingly put a falsehood into the media by holding a press conference, then send the media, you know, running around Washington trying to, to fact check right. these loopy accusations, and then greet the press the next day with a, an entirely new set of falsehoods. He did this for four years. He exhausted the press. He had them running around Washington uh, trying to track down something that he had said two weeks ago that then had cooled and no one cared about. So. To what end, you might ask? I mean, Trump became president. He took the White House. Mm. He has some sense of greater ambition. Um, and McCarthy couldn't keep up the act. So in a way, he's nowhere near as successful a demagogue as Trump. And at a moment when trusted institutions is at an all-time mm. low. So he's hitting the moment perfectly with his particular skill set, wouldn't you say? And, and hitting a particular set of media institutions that are primed for it, as as, as Jen right. pointed out earlier, right? The, the attention economy, the notion that clicks, shares, likes, and comments are the currency of our moment, plays perfectly into someone who is willing to engage in this sort of rapid fire uh, strategy, right? So, I mean, I, gosh, I, I, my, I, my mind's going a million miles a minute everything suddenly makes sense. <laughs> but, you know, like things are suddenly clearer. Well, one of the reasons we have such bright people onto our show is to help bring clarity to our very confused and muddied political moment. I mean, nothing seems as, as difficult to understand as our current uh, lack of information about the president's health. He's tested positive for COVID-19, but we still really don't know a great deal of information about his current status, his current health, and this is just one example, and a very, very serious one, of the ways in which information has been shaped or molded or manipulated uh, during the Trump presidency. And I think we've really got some insight uh, this week into how rhetoric and manipulation of reality can be a very corrosive um, factor in our political life. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment, we have the best medicines, all developed recently, and you're going to beat it. We're going back, we're going back to work, we're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front, I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. That does it for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Next week, we'll hear from Yale University philosopher Jason Stanley. He'll have a lot to tell us about the F word. Fascist politics works in democracies. Plato argues that democracy will straightforwardly lead to tyranny because democracy enables 
uh, tyrant to say whatever they want, to sow fear, and present himself as the protector. Send us your own rhetorical flourishes in the meantime. We're on Twitter at UVA Media Lab. Or if you want to go old school, send an email to uvamedialab at virginia.edu. Let us know what you think of the show. Share your suggestions with us for season two coming up in the new year. You can catch all of our past episodes on almost any podcast platform and, of course, on our website. Our website is medialab.virginia.edu slash democracy in danger. The show is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Kara Peters and Denzel Mitchell. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. This program is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. We'll see you here again next time.